A big day for big oil. On just one day in May 2021, two US oil majors suffered a rebellion by shareholders demanding action on climate change, and a Dutch court ordered Shell to cut its greenhouse gas emissions. The Hague court said that private companies have a duty of care to address climate change seriously. This is a notable decision. But was it a one-off? Or are we starting to see the battle for climate action move increasingly to the courts? This is a striking decision that will probably lead to a flood of new cases worldwide. And as some governments seek to embed the price of carbon into the products we buy, this former World Trade Organization judge tells us that even more litigation is likely. We're going to see confusion and litigation in the WTO as WTO members begin to impose carbon border adjustment measures. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the world's biggest problems and how we might solve them. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and please leave us a rating or review and share it with your friends and join the conversation at the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy with a look at big oil, climate change, and the challenges from shareholders and the courts. It falls upon the major companies in the fossil fuel industry to begin doing a lot more themselves, otherwise, they'll have a lot more opposed on them. This is Radio Davos. On May the 26th, 2021, there were three events that surprised or even shocked the oil and gas industry. A Dutch court ordered Royal Dutch Shell to cut its own CO2 emissions and those of its suppliers and customers by 45% by the end of 2030 from 2019 levels. Shareholders in Chevron surprised the board there by voting for a resolution that the company should cut its emissions. And ExxonMobil also lost a fight with its own shareholders, when a small investor group convinced a majority of shareholders to put at least two of its nominees onto the board with a view to being more proactive on climate change strategy. This was big news in the business press. Forbes called the Exxon shareholder rebellion a case of David versus Goliath. But how significant will these events prove to be? To answer that, I spoke to James Backus, adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, distinguished university professor of global affairs and director of the Center for Global Economic and Environmental Opportunity at the University of Central Florida. Before that, he was a founding judge and twice the chief judge at the World Trade Organization, the WTO. As you'll hear in this interview, he has plenty to say, not just about the court cases on climate change, which according to a study published in Nature Climate Change, already number about 1,800 around the world, But Jim Backus also sees nations getting embroiled in messy litigation at the WTO as some parts of the world seek to impose carbon taxes or similar measures on goods they import. I started by asking Jim Backus which of the three events of May 26 he considered the most significant. All of those uh, events that occurred in rapid fire succession are uh, significant. Perhaps the most highly significant is uh, what happened to Royal Dutch Shell. Uh, But in a nutshell, with respect to ExxonMobil in the United States, uh, there was a shareholder insurgence and uh, climate activists succeeded in putting two members on the ExxonMobil board. Their desire is to have the company take seriously the need to transform from being an oil and gas company to being an energy company and uh, thus move away more extensively and more rapidly from fossil fuel production. They don't control the board, but this is a significant encouragement uh, to others to try to do the same. And especially since the investors uh, who are the shareholders, including many uh, funds, 
uh, joined in this insurgence, it's a suggestion that uh, you're going to have more than just climate activists from the streets. You're going to be pushing more and more for uh, real action on climate change, not only by fossil fuel companies, but others in the United States because of the uh, risk factors and the cost factors involved. With respect to Chevron, a shareholder resolution was approved instructing uh, the company to uh, begin to take seriously what are called scope three emissions. Uh, And these are the uh, upstream emissions from suppliers and the downstream emissions by consumers who uh, use the company's goods and services. So that's a notable change in terms of uh, the prospects for more corporate governance that's linked to taking climate change seriously. As I said earlier, most significantly is the Royal Dutch Shell case and the ruling by the district court in The Hague in a suit that was brought by the Dutch chapter of Friends of the Earth, along with some other co-complainants. The Hague court has ruled uh, for the first time that a company has a corporate duty of care to prevent and mitigate the risks of the harms it causes uh, from greenhouse gas emissions. So this is a striking decision that will probably lead to um, a flood of new cases uh, in Europe, especially, but also worldwide. The Hague Court uh, built on the Urgenda decision of two years ago, in which uh, the Dutch Supreme Court ruled that the government had to do more to address uh, climate change. And the government has followed up and done so in the Netherlands. This uh, new ruling, uh, which of course is subject to appeal, extends the Urgenda ruling beyond just the responsibilities of governments to the responsibilities of private companies. Uh, The uh, Hague Court said that Royal Dutch Shell, uh, and by implication other private companies, have uh, a duty of care to address climate change seriously, irrespective of what states are doing or not doing. Uh, This is a notable decision. The study published in Nature Climate Change found around 1,800 lawsuits relating to climate change happening around the world, and that's likely to increase. Do you agree with that forecast? I think we're going to see a great many additional cases. Indeed, uh, the British chapter of Friends of the Earth is uh, talking about bringing a case against the United Kingdom uh, because of the way in which the oil exploration and uh, production in the North Sea provides uh, subsidies to the uh, fossil fuel firms uh, from the British taxpayers. I think we're going to see other additional innovations worldwide. These will be more or less successful legally depending on where they are and the prevailing rules uh, that uh, are applicable where they are. In the Dutch case, for example, the court was able to draw on uh, certain provisions of the European Convention on Human Rights in order to justify uh, their decision about the duty of care under the Dutch Civil Code, uh, you know, this unwritten duty of care to prevent harm, including now harm from climate change. 
in the United States, there is no American Convention on Human Rights. Uh, so other legal legs will be needed to stand on uh, in trying to bring these cases. But increasingly, these companies have a choice of either truly increasing their climate ambitions and doing it in something other than a, a vague public commitment uh, or vague goals without any real timetables or real checks and, uh, and accountability, either they get serious about it or they're going to be increasingly surrounded by uh, shareholder actions and, and legal actions of all kinds. And again, importantly, this is irrespective of what states may do or not do. In the United States, for example, it will be irrelevant if this approach is taken legally by U.S. courts, what the federal government is doing or not. Again, I don't know that the U.S. courts will go so far as the European courts would do in this respect. And of course, the European um, fossil fuel companies have been more ambitious in addressing climate change thus far than the big fossil fuel companies in the United States. Nevertheless, I think uh, uh, BP and Total can uh, be expecting litigation based on the Dutch ruling. So quite a different situation between Europe and the United States. In Europe, that case, as you say, was brought primarily by Friends of the Earth, a group that would say, keep the oil in the ground. I mean, they would quite happily see all of those companies go out of business because they don't want the fossil fuels coming out of the ground. In the US, what you had is a, a small group of activist investors, engine number one, who managed to persuade big investors to back them to get their people on the board. Their interest isn't in stopping the activities of Exxon. Their interest is keeping making money from Exxon. They actually argued that the way Exxon was going, they would lose money eventually because they would have, I guess, the term is stranded assets in the future if everyone's moving away from fossil fuels. So there are two completely different tracks here. One that's saying, keep it in the ground and we could bring legal actions constantly against oil companies, let's say in Europe. And this investor kind of stakeholder capitalism approach that's happening in the United States, that then does beg the question, what will happen if engine number one has succeeded in getting a couple of its people onto the board of someone like Exxon? What kind of changes can we expect to see in a company like that? The approach of the large U.S. fossil fuel companies has been different from that of the large European companies. ExxonMobil has been less than ambitious in its uh, efforts to transform its company uh, from one that uh, focuses on oil and natural gas to one that focuses uh, more generally on energy production, including re renewable forms of energy. Uh, Royal Dutch Shell uh, has a plan in place, which the Dutch court acknowledged, um, and, and th there are some ambitious targets there, and, and there are some real actions in place. And what the court said is that these are not enough. I want to emphasize here the uh, Dutch court did not find that Royal Dutch Shell has done anything unlawfully. They've simply instructed uh, Royal Dutch Shell to do a lot more specifically and sooner. 45% cut in emissions 
uh, by 2030 from 2019 levels is what the court specifically uh, mandated. So we have a different attitude. Any way you look at it, as we try as we must to decarbonize as quickly as possible, we're going to continue to need to rely on fossil fuels in the interim. The International Energy Agency uh, predicts that we'll be still relying on uh, fossil fuels for the majority of our energy uh, until 2040, uh, even with ambitious climate action. So we can't simply halt oil and gas production, in my view. What we need to do is encourage these major corporations that contribute so significantly to a greenhouse gas emissions uh, to begin more urgently to transition to producing other forms of energy. A Royal Dutch Shell accounts for about 1% of all the global greenhouse gas emissions, but one must acknowledge that a few years back, they accounted for 1.8% of all those emissions. So it's not that they haven't been doing anything. It's simply that these companies must do more must do it sooner. And in the case of ExxonMobil, it's been dragging its feet for decades. Uh, There's all kinds of evidence uh, that it paid for and promoted climate change denial in the U.S. Uh, The company uh, needs to do much better. And this is a signal to them that they need to do so. Now, climate change is a global issue. It doesn't matter where the greenhouse gases are emitted, it will have an impact on the climate globally. So what's the situation where some parts of the world are clamping down on emissions, other parts might not be. And the idea that we have to embed the costs of those emissions into products, even ones that are traded from one side of the world to the other. Royal Dutch Shell made the argument in this case that they shouldn't be held to this standard if other producers elsewhere were not. And the court rejected this on the basis that the same duty of care applies to all companies everywhere. But you, of course, have pointed out uh, the reality, uh, which is that uh, there may not be climate litigation brought by NGOs in China. (laughs) I I don't see that happening. What's needed here is is not judicial action. What's needed is cooperative international action. And this international action which I think needs to be done in concert between the World Trade Organization and the United Nations Climate Convention, should account for the necessity of taking certain border adjustment measures. This raises an entirely new issue. The Europeans are on the verge of introducing a carbon border adjustment mechanism. That will undoubtedly lead to litigation in the WTO, depending on how it's structured and applied, the uh, United States may well follow suit, but a lot of developing countries see this as uh, an expression of green protectionism and a violation of WTO rules. Well, you were chief judge at the World Trade Organization, so you're well placed to tell us what could happen if the European Union, which already imposes on its own manufacturers limits on greenhouse gas emissions, does go ahead, as you mentioned, and imposes some kind of, let's say, carbon tax on imported goods that weren't produced with those kinds of limits on emissions. It will come down to the World Trade Organization to say whether it's allowed. Which side of the fence do you think they'll rule on? 
It depends on how the European measure is structured. Uh, whether it's uh, the EU or anyone else, uh, by far the best way to enact a measure that's consistent with WTO obligations that imposes trade restrictions as part of climate action is through a carbon tax. That's by far the best way to help uh, make a, a national measure legal under the WTO. However, the Europeans are not planning on approving a carbon tax, nor is the Biden administration in the United States, which for all its climate ambition has not proposed one. Uh, this is not happening. I wouldn't want to foresee the outcome of a WTO case. Because of the political difficulties in passing a carbon tax uh, everywhere, and because of the political difficulties everywhere uh, in trying to pass a trade restriction as part of a climate measure solely for climate reasons, uh, I proposed a WTO climate waiver. I proposed that uh, WTO members come together and waive certain of the existing obligations when there are climate uh, measures taken by members that advance climate action while also uh, having uh, economic motivations. I'm hoping that this approach will get some currency, but more likely we're going to see confusion and litigation in the WTO as not only the EU, but other WTO members uh, begin to uh, impose carbon border adjustment measures. So your proposal would be that the WTO would take a proactive stance, get its members together, discuss how it would handle this issue already, but you fear more likely it will be decided through litigation. Yes. The option is uh, to engage in this endless uncertain round of competing litigation and, and have uh, WTO judges draw the line about what's permissible and what's not. By far the better approach would be for the WTO and, and the Climate Cop to come together and draw that line. The uh, Conference of Parties on Climate Change has been talking about what are legitimate climate response measures for quite a few years, but they have not defined them. That needs to be done. If there's a global standard as to what's permissible and what's not, then WTO judges will turn to that standard in order to decide what's permissible and what's not in terms of trade restrictions. You mentioned that a carbon tax would make it legally simpler. Can you explain why that would be? We're, we're talking here about Article 2, Paragraph 2A of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which is uh, one of the agreements that uh, together comprise uh, the WTO Treaty. In this provision, since 1947, it's been possible to make border tax adjustments uh, to uh, even out tax obligations, uh, remissions on exports and uh, taxes on imports to offset domestic tax burdens. I believe that under this provision, a carbon tax is permissible as a border tax adjustment. What I've recommended is let's eliminate whatever a lack of clarity there is because there's no WTO jurisprudence on these issues and simply have the WTO members adopt a binding formal legal interpretation saying that carbon taxes are eligible for border tax adjustments. Then uh, it would be a simple matter to establish 
WTO legality. The problem with other approaches, such as the one the European Union seems to be taking, is that they would, in the first, violate WTO obligations by being discriminatory in how they treat imported products. So there would be the need for the uh, EU to have recourse to the general exceptions in the GATT provided for environmental products and measures and, and health and safety measures. And this will be difficult if economic motivations are seen to be uh, in the architecture of the measure and how it's applied. And then there will be a further question as to whether the measure was being uh, applied as a disguised restriction on international trade uh, or in a form that uh, has the effect of establishing artificial or unjustifiable discrimination. These are all legal terms of art. There are plenty of WTO case law on these issues. I wrote a lot of it. This is a more difficult task, but this is the one that the EU will likely be faced with in WTO litigation in the absence of simply applying a carbon tax. And the same will be true for the United States or China or any other country. You're listening to Radio Davos. We'll be right back after this. Barbara Martin Coppola is the chief digital officer of IKEA, and she talked to Meet the Leader about leading the digital transition for that 78-year-old company and how those plans helped it weather the pandemic. We threw all the schedules out and all these functions were actually suddenly completely focused in getting Nikon right. She talked to Meet the Leader about how technology is transforming everything the company does, from supply chains to the shopping experience to how it helps people live better for the planet. Sustainability is the biggest uh, challenge of the decade. And so technology very much can work towards accelerating sustainability for inhabitants of the whole world. She'll explain all of this and the surprising way a background in music prepared her. Slicing into simplicity, chunks that you can comprehend and testing through that education taught me a lot for hackling complexity later on in life. I'm your host, Linda Lucina. Hear about all this and more on the next Meet the Leader. Welcome back to Radio Davos, where we're looking at whether shareholder rebellions and court cases will force oil and gas producers to slash greenhouse gas emissions. Professor Jim Backus was telling us before the break that there was a risk of messy litigation between countries and that the World Trade Organization should set out what measures countries can or cannot impose on imports in the name of tackling climate change. I also asked him whether this was something that will be addressed when the world meets in November for the Climate Change Summit COP26. No, the committee and the COP that's been talking about response measures has not really addressed this issue. It's it's tried to steer away from trade as a whole and the trade effects of climate measures, uh, especially by refraining from defining a climate response measures. And I don't really see that that's on the agenda for COP26. But here's the legal quandary for the COP. There are about 195 countries that are members of the conference parties and uh, parties to uh, the Paris Climate Agreement. 164 of those COP members and participants are also members of the WTO. And if a measure taken by any one of those members in furtherance of climate action or in furtherance of their 
climate pledges they've made under the Paris Agreement affects trade, then legally it falls within the jurisdiction of the WTO. The Conference of Parties has decided not to have a formal dispute settlement mechanism. De facto, this means that with respect to those 164 parties to the Paris Agreement, their uh, climate-related disputes when they affect trade are going to be judged in the WTO. That's just the way it is. I made a, a speech in Copenhagen in 2009 warning of an impending collision between the trade and climate regimes, and everyone thought I was out of my mind. But now here we are. It's, it's about to happen. And unless the WTO and the COP get together to negotiate the line that needs to be drawn, then the line's going to be drawn in WTO jurisprudence. And should we be worried that legal lines are being drawn by the courts rather than policymakers? Well, one of my concerns is that government is too much bent on regulation of the market. But if we have participants in the market who are not acting responsibly, then there's a requirement, I think, for governments to intercede through regulation. And the more irresponsibly they act, the more likely there is to be more regulation. With respect to uh, the Dutch court case, we now have the courts regulating. That's less than ideal, as I'm sure the uh, very fine Dutch uh, judges would agree. In the United States, that's certainly where we stand. I've been telling the private sector in the United States for years that they need to take action on their own in a way of their choosing to accomplish these goals, or action's going to be imposed upon them in ways they uh, may not like. Uh, I think it was 15 years ago that I went to Houston at the invitation of ExxonMobil and spoke to all of their in-house lawyers and told them that. And uh, it's a message that uh, I continue to try to share with the private sector. I'm uh, very much in in favor of, of capitalism, but I'm in favor of responsible capitalism. I served for 11 years as chair of the uh, Global Commission on Trade and Investment Policy for the International Chamber of Commerce, which represents eight or nine million companies all over the world, including all of uh, these fossil fuel firms. And, you know, the message from the ICC uh, to everyone is uh, to engage in capitalism, but do it responsibly so that we don't have some lesser form of economic system imposed on us. So going back to where we began this conversation, those shareholder rebellions in the U.S., the Dutch court case, is this a watershed moment? Is it a bleak moment for the fossil fuel industry? Or is it a ray of light for them because they're being shown that actually now this is what they have to do? To some extent, it's a bit of all of that. Less so in terms of the shareholder actions in the United States, I think, More significant, as I said earlier, I think, is the Dutch court case, especially uh, for other members of the European Union, but also more generally. At this point, there are, at last count, about 1,800 climate cases in process worldwide. The numbers are accelerating. I think the Dutch holding will add to that accelerating and mounting number of climate cases. Also, I think it will encourage the kinds of uh, 
rights cases that uh, this one is. Uh, in the past, a good number of the climate cases focused on the damages that had been caused by climate change. This case is also, in addition to that, about the damages that will be caused by climate change if there's not more ambitious climate action. And I think you will hear echoes of that worldwide in increasing numbers. So it falls upon the major uh, companies in the fossil fuel industry to uh, begin doing a lot more themselves. Otherwise, they'll have a lot more imposed on them. Wonderful. Jim Backus, thanks for joining us on Radio Davos. My great pleasure. You can find more from James Backus in blogs we've published on weform.org. And we'll be covering more climate change and indeed trade stories as the WTO meeting and the Climate Change Summit approach. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok and YouTube and on Twitter using the handle at WEF. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review. Find us at wf.ch slash podcasts and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with editing by Clizia Sala and technical support by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week with another episode of Radio Davos. But for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>